he's here to say what made the list. Top Man! Aqualads and Aqualasses, I'll tell you, as a parent now, and as a person who had parents, you know, we love to pull the old, you know, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. And it's supposed to really sting. It's supposed to really hurt you right in your heart. Like, oh, geez, they're not even mad. I just really disappointed my parents. Well, I don't know if it works. However, today, all of us, well, maybe just me, we get to play parent to Hollywood. Because today's top ick, never gonna let that one die, are my top 15 cinematic disappointments. Oh boy. So so what is this? Well, you know, I have a bit of a problem, alright? I really, really like going to see movies in the theater. And sometimes the hype, I mean, just like it does with anything else in our lives that we're excited for, a big game, WrestleMania, etc., etc. Sometimes a movie can't live up to the hype that you, you've given it in your own mind, or perhaps the hype that's been put out into the zeitgeist by the uh, distribution company. But at the same time, isn't that sort of their job? So we can't really blame them. And so that means that this list is going to be a big personal list. There's bias involved, there's emotions involved, and for that, I, I apologize, but I hope you'll understand. That being said, I am i can't imagine looking on this list that there isn't at least one or two that are sort of shared unanimously amongst uh, fandoms and things like that. And it's not even about anything like box office results or, oh, I really wanted that movie to start like a big franchise or anything like that. It's, it's more about how you just sort of felt your heart break while you're sitting there in the chair. Like, oh no, this isn't what I wanted. But, you know, and you've got to keep things like that in check as well. Just because it's not what you wanted, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a disappointment. It needs to fail on multiple levels. You know, if it's like, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't want that character to die. Well, that's not really a cinematic disappointment. That's more of a... Oh, I, that was my favorite character, and, you know, they made a creative choice and what have you. It's not like it was ill-intended from the get-go or designed to be flawed from its, from its you know, origin point. So, right off the bat, like I said, it's top 15. I got two honorable mentions we're going to breeze through real quickly, and then we'll get on to the list. I am disqualifying, all right, this is the big disclaimer, I am disqualifying the film Justice League, directed by Joss Whedon, I guess, uh, from contention, all right? Because I've said my piece about that, and given things that have happened later on in the life of that film, uh, you know, like, if, if Zack Snyder's Justice League had never been released, there's no way Justice League doesn't hit number one, all right? But it's off the list because the actual version of the film was released, and therefore we can just forget about it. But at the time... Oh boy. Oh boy, indeed. So that is automatically disqualified from the list. And that sort of concept is going to help play into our first honorable mention, which is the only, well, maybe it's not the only, we'll get there. It's a double up, okay? It's two films that share basically the same experience, okay? So honorable mention number one, we've got Thor, Love and Thunder, teaming up with Avengers 
Age of Ultron. All right. Now, why are these honorable mentions? The big reason they're honorable mentions as a combo is that it's unfair to compare MCU films to other films, in my opinion, on a list like this. I mean, you could do it for your own. That's fine. This is mine, and hear me out. The MCU is very unique. Like Avengers Age of Ultron, at the time to me, was kind of a disappointment and a letdown. Obviously, it's on the list. However, retroactively, they've been able to take things that I enjoyed about it, like The Scarlet Witch, for example, just as a big standout, because that's the film that introduces her. And they've really improved upon her and made her an important character in the MCU. And also... Items and events that took place in that film have been made better retroactively by other films in the MCU canon. You know, I, I this didn't make the list, but I was thinking about it this weekend because, of course, like a lot of people, I binged the latest season of Cobra Kai. Don't worry. I won't spoil anything about it, so you don't have to fast forward. But, like, The Karate Kid 3 which came out of that blazing hot summer of 1989 cinema that I definitely still need to do a podcast over. I've mentioned it a couple of times, even on the North-South Connection when I reviewed Batman. Like, the summer of 89 is just a goldmine for Hollywood blockbusters and franchises that got sequels, things like that. Uh, but The Karate Kid 3, to me, was a disappointment. I, I didn't even get to see it in theaters. I was too, I was, you know, mom and dad were like, I just took you to see Indiana Jones. I just took you to see Ghostbusters. I just took you to see Batman for the fourth time. Let's wait for home video. Um, but, you know, Karate, or excuse me, Cobra Kai has retroactively made The Karate Kid Part 3 so much better. And I've gone back and rewatched it to confirm that. You know, I was a huge Karate Kid 2 fan, but this is about the Karate Kid, all right? So, and Thor Love and Thunder, to me, is just too recent to really sting. But as, you know, not not a cheap plug, but I reviewed it over on the North South Connection Podcast Network. And man, I, I, I was really excited. I was really looking forward to it, and it hurt pretty hard walking out of that theater. And I know that Avengers Age of Ultron gets a couple of extra... Uh, negative negativity points in my brain because it was a really bad theater experience. You know, I was on a work trip and I was in a very small, uh, densely, you know, not densely, it was in a very small area, all right, a very rural area, and the theater was just not up to snuff. Like, the screen was shitty, the sound was at minimal levels. Had the same experience with Guardians of the Galaxy as well, but... That wasn't an Avengers film, so it doesn't really qualify. But that that's sort of why these two are just an honorable mention, and they're sort of lined up together, uh, because they exist in this unfair reality where they can fix themselves. Okay, The other honorable mention is an honorable mention because I was hyped up for it for just stupid reasons in, in, in retrospect. And that is the 1998, I believe, or 90, yeah, not, no, 98, film The Peacemaker. No, not John Cena's Peacemaker. This is the Peacemaker. Well, you may not even remember what that is. It's some, like, spy, espionage, government, you know, try to stop... U.S. government's a good guy trying to blow up some nukes before some bad guys can use them or some shit. Starring George Clooney and Nicole Kidman. Now, the general public, I don't think, was beating down any doors to get tickets to see the Peacemaker. But in my little Johnny C brain... See, this was the first ever film released by the DreamWorks studio. And for some reason, I felt like going to see this movie was a huge part of history. 
Okay, I was like, oh man, I'm 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 here. I'm here on opening day, first ever DreamWorks uh, Studios picture. They're gonna change cinema, blah blah blah, and, and they're gonna do it first with the Peacemaker. It's their big event film that they're releasing. Plus. Plus, back in my head, back in the, the other part of my brain, I was like, "This is the movie that will redeem George Clooney and let Warner Brothers see that he should still play Batman." Because as a kid that that saw From Dust Till Dawn before Batman and Robin, and mind you, From Dust Till Dawn was my only exposure to George Clooney. I walked into Batman and Robin thinking, "Oh my God, George Clooney is going to murder this thing! Like he's such a badass. This is going to be amazing. He's going to be an awesome Batman." And we've all seen Batman and Robin, right? Now, Batman and Robin misses the list because I, I was brainwashed. I saw that bad boy five times in cinemas. I was brainwashed by myself. All right? So it doesn't make the list because I didn't walk out of the theater disappointed. But this movie is just meh. I mean, there's nothing. It's just meh. It's fine. Like, whatever. I haven't seen it in a really long time. Uh, but it is an honorable mention because every single time I see, well, I'd go to a video store when they existed and see the tape or the DVD, or if I'm on some streaming service and I'm scrolling through stuff and I see the art, like, hey, want to watch The Peacemaker? I always kind of chuckle, like, heh, I remember when you thought that movie was going to be something big. And so, honorable mentions concluded. Let's dive in to number 15. Mission Impossible. Okay, kind of a weird pick. I'm putting this out there right now. I could give a shit less about the Mission Impossible franchise. I got no problems with it, okay? I'm actually a huge fan of John Woo's Mission Impossible 2 and will fight you to the death over that opinion. Well, in a fun way. I wouldn't, you know, I'm not swearing some sort of blood oath that I will defend Mission Impossible 2 against all haters, but I do like it quite a bit. For silly reasons, but it's mine, so that's fine. But Mission Impossible was a big day for me theatrically, okay? It was a big, rare, double feature. First up, Twister. Then some dinner. Then wash it all down with Mission Impossible. Man, was I stoked. Two huge event films, Memorial Day, weekend. I don't have school the next couple of days. I'm. I, it's fucking Christmas part two for a young Johnny C. Mission Impossible totally went over my head. I will freely admit it, all right? Uh, you know, I could understand and analyze Pulp Fiction, but for some reason... Mission Impossible, I just hit me in the wrong spot at the wrong time. I don't know. Maybe the film's poorly written. Maybe I'm just making excuse, excuses. But I just... The the plot, the mission that was impossible completely went over my head. So I was lost in the theater and just like, alright, fine. Just fucking give me some action sequences. And you know what? There's really not that many action sequences. It's low on the list of overall disappointments because... After all, the film has no real consequences to me. I don't walk around sour that I didn't enjoy the first Mission Impossible. And being a fan of Mission Impossible 2 just makes it sort of funny to me. And it always I always remember how disappointed I was with the first one. Also, when you compound that with the fact that I did not enjoy Twister. I think the movie was just hyped up too much by people I knew, like friends and stuff like that, who had already seen it. And it just really was a double whammy of disappointment. I feel like I ate a big platter of shit in between Twister and Mission Impossible as well. And you know, having such a unique day in my childhood, not a big deal. 
All right. Actually, it makes me feel kind of silly sitting up here complaining about having that experience because it's like, dude, you got to go have dinner with some friends because I was with a friend and his family. I was being treated to all this. Plus, two movies in one day. Like, what's the fucking problem? Uh, so, you know, it's only number 15, guys. So relax. All right? Number 14. Double Team. Or, as it was known until they decided to market it around basketball, The Colony. All right. Shoot me. I was excited to see Dennis Rodman on the big screen. But you got to keep in mind context and the personalized nature of the list. It's 1997, and I'm owned by professional wrestling, all right? NWO bad boy Dennis Rodman teaming up with Jean-Claude Van Damme. My God, what an event of childhood fixations culminating together. Rodman, of course, a new fixture and an old favorite, that being professional wrestling. And JCVD, whose movies I constantly was renting off of the shelf nonstop. You might say to yourself, Johnny, how could you possibly have Double Team on here when you haven't even mentioned Street Fighter? Well, Street Fighter misses the list. Because again, personalized nature of the list, I saw Street Fighter on Christmas Day and was so overwhelmed with being a kid watching a fucking movie called Street Fighter on Christmas Day, I can never call it a disappointment. For you, it was the greatest day of your life. But for Johnny C, it was Tuesday. Rest in peace, Raul Julia. Uh, But again, context here, all right? I wasn't depending on Double Team to, like, give me something or to, you know, be answers to great cinematic questions I might have. I wanted a badass action flick, and I wanted to see Dennis Rodman beat the shit out of people. And it just didn't work. The movie is chock full of bad editing. I mean, you could tell this thing was cut and hacked to pieces, and the ADR is also atrocious. Yes, I realize it's 1997, and I'm only 13 years old, but I've always been a film snob, and that shit stood out to me even at the time. I remember the name of the director. Uh, oh, what well, I said, Sui Hark, Hark Sui. I, I forget where he's from. I maybe miss. Uh, organizing the surname and the first name, and I apologize for that. But it was a name getting tossed around online as someone to pay attention to as a director. Now, this individual is responsible for a lot of great productions uh, to come out of China and Hong Kong, if I'm not mistaken. Um, oh, God, Better Tomorrow. And I know that's a John Woo flick, but, you know, he's, he's a producer on all that stuff. Um, I remember buying Black Mask on DVD for similar reasons and being burned. Although that's a movie I would like to check out the actual original language dub of, because I'm sure, you know, but this isn't about Black Mask. Double Team. It's number 14. I mean, I don't know how much further to dive into it. I was disappointed. It is what it is. Number 13. Unlucky number 13. Fitting that it's this. Kind of a weird one to add to the list, I will admit. But hear me out. I have two big fears in my life. Well, everybody's got a lot of fears, but we want to talk about those like elemental type fears. For example, uh, I'm deathly afraid of aliens. Based on a legendary prank pulled by my late great-grandfather. Seriously, a prank of the magnitude that he was able to pull on me that made me forever fearful of alien invasions belongs in a museum somewhere. I won't go into it any further because, 
you know, it is what it is. Uh, so I'm definitely afraid of aliens. So like the movie Signs, like I could see why if you hate it, you hate it, you like it, you like it. That, like all that shit aside, I I give it a big thumbs up because as I'm watching it in the cinema, I, there's a very primal response happening in my head. I'm well, in, in in appropriate context, scared shitless. You know what I mean? Like, I'm into it. Like, I'm feeling the fear of the characters because I, myself, afraid of aliens. The other big primal fear that's somewhat entertainment-based, and it might be weird, but hear me out, I'm really afraid of the Headless Horseman. When I was a kid, we were a Showtime subscription house, and Showtime had this uh, sort of cartoon program called Fairy Tale Theater. It may have been other places, but I saw it on Showtime. And Fairy Tale Theater was sort of like a, a motion comic, if you're familiar with that. It was like series of paintings that told a fairy tale story with celebrity voices, and you know, every once in a while the paintings would shift. So you might have Ichabod Crane shaking someone's hand, and then the next uh, screen, it's the same painting, but he's dancing instead of shaking the hand. Glenn Close, legendary uh, person you don't want to fuck with, after you fuck with, <laughs> that's a fatal attraction joke, don't get mad, was the narrator here, and she narrated The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And holy shit balls! as a child, the appearance of the Headless Horseman and brutal murdering, I think, of Ichabod Crane. Oof, every time. That fla- oh, oh, I, don't, I can't even talk about it. Now, I've since purchased this on Prime Video over the years and tried to face my fears. I'll report back some other time on that. So, why is all of this relevant? Because number 13, Sleepy Hollow by Tim Burton. I was stoked to see Tim Burton do The Headless Horseman with a massive budget. And when you include the fact that it's 1999 and Darth Maul, Ray Park himself, is playing The Headless Horseman, I'm all sorts of ready to be in the cinema and be frightened and also entertained with some badass Headless Horseman spectacle. Now, the Headless Horseman spectacle is kind of fine, but this movie just doesn't do it for me. It's Overload Overdrive Tim Burton. And that's okay. It's just, I wanted, I feel like I wanted something different. I was still excited. I knew Tim Burton would do his thing, but I feel like the end result just didn't match up what I wanted to experience in my head. To me, also, the cast is very distracting. Of course, you've got Johnny Depp, a staple of Burton's roster. Christina Ricci's in there. She's doing fine. But then you've got, like, Jeffrey Jones showing up, who's a Tim Burton distraction. Uh, Alfred, Michael Goh, is showing up here, being a distraction to me, because it's just Alfred in a Tim Burton movie. I don't remember if Otho is in this one or not, but it wouldn't surprise me if he is. Uh, Christopher Lee showing up's fine. I was also very distracted by uh, Casper Van Dien showing up, uh, as I was a huge Starship Troopers fan, and I was just kind of like, well, he still can't act. He's in here ruining my Sleepy Hollow movie. And again, it is low ranking. It's just at number 13, because I know that the Sleepy Hollow isn't the sort of film that you point to like, oh, well, of course, you, you should have been excited. You, you Of course you were disappointed. I mean, the movie's fine. It's a solid two and a half. It's a gentleman's two and a half movie. On a scale of four. I don't do five stars when you're ranking cinema. I grew up on the USA Today system. Because I got all my film reviews from the USA Today. Four stars was the max. So I kind of, you know, I can't... Wrestling to this day, star rankings throw me off. Because I'm used to the four and I still live by the four. But if you want to do numerics, 
okay, we'll call Sleepy Hollow like a solid six and a half. I haven't watched it in a couple years, so I'm sure that could improve. But the experience, the disappointment always stands out because of my sort of strange affinity, uh, love, fear of Sleepy Hollow. But to understand number 12, we have to move away from 1999. It's the summer of 1997. And Mama C, that being my mom, my momster, if you will, has decided to allow me to decorate my room special this summer. After I, sure, begged and pleaded. Not that she was mean or anything like that, but now I'm going to explain what I wanted to do. So I had multiple boards pinned up to the wall. Those, like, boards that, like, have a back you could stick thumbtacks into. I don't know what they're technically called. And I've also got some calendars plastered on the wall as well. Now, these thumbtack boards contain printed out logos. Rest in peace, my printer in the ink, by the way, for 1997. Freshly printed out logos of all the big summer releases for 1997. The calendars not only have release dates, but also areas for me to track box office results. So needless to say, I was a little excited for the summer of 97. And who could blame me? Listen to this illustrious roster of titles. The Lost World, Con Air, Batman and Robin, Face Off, Men in Black, Contact, Nothing to Lose, which I stand by as an underrated comedy, Air Force One, even Spawn makes the list. Event Horizon. Steel. I'm a big DC Comics fan, alright? Mimic even made the list. I don't know why. Probably because that trailer was in front of everything in 1997. And another underrated comedy gem. The Charlie Sheen, uh, Chris Tucker, Money Talks. Now, if you're a student of history, and you know the summer of 97, you may notice that I've uh, omitted... A big blockbuster from the summer of 1997. That's because it's my number 12, and I wanted to give it the appropriate level of build-up. Speed 2 Cruise Control. Oh, boy. The original Speed was a big hit in the Johnny C household. Even Mama C liked it. That Keanu Reeves is just so dreamy. It was a type of movie where somebody's watching it, because you better believe we owned it on VHS. Somebody's watching it. You're trying to walk somewhere else in the house. You see speed on your television screen. And you're like, huh, I'll give this a few minutes of my time. Next thing you know, roll credits and scene. You've watched the entire movie. And I think that's justifiable. Speed is action-packed. It's fun. It's suspenseful. It's got a great cast. A cast that goes deep. You know, the folks on that bus are all memorable in one way or another. All right? So, Dennis Hopper, as well as the villain. We'll talk about Dennis here in just a few minutes, though. So, Johnny C had convinced himself, that being I, that we didn't need Keanu Reeves. Jason Patrick was here and ready to be the new lead hero of the silver screen. Sandra Bullock is back, too. She's top build. She's still a damsel in distress. It was my first big exposure to Willem Dafoe, who if you'd like to be exposed more to, just Google it, and you can see what Willem is packing. I mean, this movie wasn't even Speed 2, right? I forget if I can back this up, but I think famously it's some terrorist boat movie that was a script that got shopped around Hollywood, and Fox just nabbed it up and was like, yeah, let's just 
take this script and turn it into Speed 2. Because it does a big sequel sin of completely reverting everything we loved about the first one. Why not just have Jason Patrick play Keanu's character? Then we don't have to deal with the fact that the couple we fell in love with, that being Sandra and Keanu, broke up off screen. I don't know. Maybe it's realistic, but it's a big budget popcorn blockbuster. And you're going the PG-13 direction already to try to make more money. So why you fucking with the speed of old that I love even more by erasing the Keanu character? I know he wanted the cash. You should have paid him. Because this was a $200 million flop. Regardless of the quality of the film, I argue you keep Keanu in. And this is nothing against Jason Patrick. All right, The dude's an actor. This is not his gig. I believe famously he did this as a, not as a favor because he got paid, but I believe him and Sandra were friends. And she was like, just have Jason come do it. And Jason was like, sure. Are you kidding me? Who wouldn't? But the cast as well doesn't hold up to the bus passengers. The boat passengers are... I, I can't even think of any. Well, I can think of any, but I'm not going to waste your time, all right? Although, I will say this, New Zealand's greatest export and father to Aquaman himself, Tamara Morrison, is here. I guess you could say also father to Boba Fett. Django Fett himself, Tamara Morrison, is here as the beleaguered guy steering the boat after the captain dies. So he's pretty cool. Plus, you've got that Scottish guy who's like, 27 knots, Captain! Two knots! Why do I remember this? Like, why do I remember impressions of Speed 2 characters? My brain is cursed. And so because of that, let's put a pin on Speed 2 Cruise Control before it poisons my mind even further. Number 11. Aqualads and Aqualasses, I have walked out of three films in my life. The one that pops into my head as being the most recent was for justifiable cause. Although it broke my heart because I was loving the shit out of Wreck-It Ralph, as I'm sure you can imagine. But my very young daughter at the time got a little overwhelmed by some of the villains and wanted to leave. And what's a parent to do, right? So that's justifiable. Uh, One other film I've walked out of as a youth was a Lou Diamond Phillips star called Bats. I don't really know. I know it's a low-budget like horror flick. You know, we were there's a dollar cinema in my, the town where I went to to watch movies. And if I'm not mistaken, we were just trying to kill time, me and my buddies. And like, you know, I think we got a a, a rudimentary call on an old school cell phone from another friend who was like, "Hey, I, I my practice is done. I can meet you in ten minutes." And it was like, "All right, well, let's get the fuck out of here because this movie sucks anyway." However, the final walkout. And my cinematic history was done out of rage, anger, shitty movie, yes. But my heart was also broken. And to this date, I have never gone back and watched our number 11 film in its entirety. The first few ish entries of this series have been on my mind lately, and that has brought it back into my brain, and remember, and it's made me remember the pain of number 11, Major League... Back to the Miners. Another sequel that isn't really a sequel, right? Some sort of scripts floating around about some minor league baseball players getting into all sorts of shenanigans, and let's just flop our logo onto it. I mean, I realize they took the steps to make it a sequel. 
I can recall they brought back Kamikaze Tanaka, Rube Baker. I think Corbin Burnson is like the owner of the team that it's the double-A team for. I don't know. But this sequel does have some things going for it, right? Scott Bakula as the manager? I'm a huge Scott Bakula fan. And I confirmed this as recently as Labor Day weekend when my entire family was sick and missed out on everything for the weekend. And I fell into a deep hole of Quantum Leap on Peacock which I would recommend to anyone. But this thing also features Ted McGinley from Married with Children and Revenge of the Nerds and Revenge of the Nerds 3. I mean, there's some fun stuff going on here, right? But it just wasn't hitting. They're grasping at straws. It's, God, it's one of these movies that's a sequel to a movie. I mean, we already explained it. I've already explained that concept. And to this day, I think what bugs me the most is I don't know if I was truly wrong about this thing or not, as I've never given it a chance. Last year, I got COVID, and I just watched, I spent like, I mean, like, what, seven days in isolation in my room even? Like, my, you know, didn't didn't see anybody hardly at all. And, and, and I watched a lot of movies. I watched one and two which I owned, you know, to my own devices. And I said to myself, literally, I said, self, let's just fucking do it, all right? Because my, all, my, all my film collections VOD now. I don't even have my DVDs anymore. And I pull, and I owned one and two. I pull up Major League 3 on Prime Video, probably, because that's my go-to. And Major League 3, at the time, I don't know if it still is, but it's one of these situations where it's like a niche film that nobody really wants to buy except you because you love it. And it's still 1995. I recently bit the 1995 bullet uh, when I purchased a seminal 90s classic, My Boyfriend's Back, another great movie that's kind of like Teen Wolf about a kid who becomes a zombie at his high school and nobody really cares. that. Well, they care he's a zombie, but they don't care about the supernatural or worldwide implications of a walking, talking zombie. That was worth the 1995. I bit that bullet. I have yet to bite the Major League 3 $20 bullet. I might consider it if I go on there sometime and see it's like $6.99, but to this date... Number 11 remains. Major League. Back to the minors. I promised you some more Dennis Hopper. And number 10, or just some Dennis Hopper, because I said his name. Number 10 is going to give us Dennis Hopper. And the thing I love most about this film is it's, it's given me a vision in my head of Dennis Hopper, when he was alive, rest his soul, walking around his house and, and finding some problems in his home and realizing that he needs to call in some help. And you know, maybe a spouse walks up to him and they're like, Dennis, the toilet's on the flicks. The toilet is on the fritz. We need some help. And Dennis Hopper just looks into the mirror and blankly stares and says under his breath, Plumbers. Because this will be put into my head that Dennis Popper has an irrational fear and hatred of plumbers. Famously, the tagline was, This ain't no game. And I'm here to double up on that. Because folks, clearly, this ain't the game that I wanted. Super... Mario Brothers. What the fuck is this? I mean, I'm nine years old, and all I want to see is Mario and Luigi getting into some Mario and Luigi-related shenanigans. Now, I was no fool. I could tell from the marketing that that this wasn't going to be that. However, in a game of mental chess or mental gymnastics, I was able to convince myself that this was just going to be the game. It's just all the shenanigans and mushroom-related shit that they were going to get involved with wasn't going to be happening in the Mushroom Kingdom. Just this crazy metropolis-type city 
that was controlled by Dennis Hopper. And I suppose that's probably the pitch that the studio went with. But the stuff that they lean into from the games is just too far and few in between. And the interpretation of what they choose. So keep that in mind. They choose like, what, five or six things, argument's sake. And then they choose to interpret them in ways that are just so off base of the actual game itself. And by the time you even get to these off-base interpretations, it's just too late. You've spent 70 minutes running around with this fucking plot and fucking production design. You're just ready to throw in the towel. Flip side, I'll give it a little bit of credit for being some inspired casting. Bob Hoskins could have played Mario in his sleep. And you know, they pretty much did just make Luigi poochie. Luigi is a Poochie variant, if you will. But as a younger brother myself, who, what younger brother out there didn't want to see the big L finally get his day to shine? And plus, he wore his hat backwards. I mean, come on, right? It's 1992. Luigi's got the hat on backwards. It seems to be cool. But even as a child of 10 or 9 or whatever the fuck I was, it was breaking my heart in the cinema hardcore. I always put faith in the fact that the movie ends famously with Princess Daisy rushing in and saying, you're never going to believe this, as one of the great all-time sequel setups. Well, folks, let me tell you something. You're never going to believe this. I don't think that sequel is ever going to see the light of day. And no, this fucking bastardization Chris Pratt Mario doesn't count. (laughs) Wait till, well, I was going to say, wait till we amend the list someday in the future, but I'm not exactly excited for that. Number nine. Man, the original film here. A lot of sequels on this list. I wonder why. The original of this film really just lit pop culture on fire and made this man an overnight sensation, even though he had works you could point to to show that there was greatness there. But Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, the sequel to Ace Ventura Pet Detective, gave us Jim Carrey on a worldwide scale. After Ace Ventura was released, these releases fell like dominoes. The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, which I don't like. Batman Forever. My little kid excitement for Ace Ventura 2 was off the chain. I mean, Ace Ventura was pretty fucking funny. Sure, some of the jokes don't age as well, but we're not here to call out 1993. All right? The past is what it is. You learn from it. Whole nother podcast, though. But it's opening night in November of 1995, 6, whatever fucking year it was. The theater is packed. Really packed. Stands out to me still to this day. Like I say, it's Thanksgiving weekend as well. And I'm going to be able to tell my family on Thanksgiving Day, well, hey, I've already seen Ace Ventura when nature calls. Let me tell you how funny it is. Let me tell you how great it is. And aren't you jealous that I've seen it and you haven't? Plus, I'm positioned as one of the kids who when we come back to school, they could be like, yeah, I've seen Ace Ventura too. What do you want to know? What do you want to know? I can tell you. And you know what? It's just not even close to being as funny as the first one. It's completely, it's like played a completely different sport. Yeah, that's kind of funny because the first one's a football move. But seriously, the first one works, but the shtick of Ace Ventura doesn't have a lot of legs. Hear me out here. I'm going to compare it to Austin Powers, which you can, your mileage may vary, but conceptually hear me out. 
Austin Powers sequels and stuff benefit from the fact that there's so many characters that you can focus on that each have their own shtick. That if one character doesn't quite work long form, see Powers, Austin, you can switch over to Dr. Evil, who has a completely different shtick that, your mileage may vary, works for me, it may not work for you, but there's so many different characters to pivot to, and they invent new characters. Austin Powers, excuse me, Austin Powers, Ace Ventura doesn't do that. It's solely, it doubles down on relying on Ace because it makes the big sequel mistake, probably because it was unplanned, and a sequel to a movie that they never thought would merit a sequel. Like, Ace is the only guy here that has anything to do with the first ones, all right? All traces of our previous adventure are just null and void. And that includes Bruce Springsteen's favorite actress, Courtney Cox. Plus, I'm kind of a big fan of the Sylvester Stallone, John Lithgow. All right, let me rephrase this. The John Lithgow, Michael Rooker, and Sylvester Stallone film, Cliffhanger. And they kind of do Cliffhanger dirty in the opening. But I guess a parody is better than making fun of right out. I will give Ace Ventura 2 a little bit of credit because of the bat jokes. You know, Jim Carrey just fought Batman and Ace Ventura's kind of afraid of bats. It's like meta before meta was a thing, right? I give it credit for that, but not enough to not make the list at this high of a number. It's a single-digit heartbreaker because the dreams of the child version of Johnny C and the heart, I could still see the pieces shattered all over the remains of that cinema, and that's why it earns the number nine spot. Well, folks, that takes us to smack dab in the middle of this list, which I will admit, it's a, it's a, it's a 15... Uh, it's a list with 15 different items, so it's kind of hard to say you're right smack dab in the middle. But number eight, I think, is perfect because it sort of is a state of neutrality or being in the middle. All right. See, it doesn't stem from disappointment, but more of a state of neutrality. Uh, it's another film from 1999. And this movie was first brought to my attention via online sources. Which, I mean, in 1999 was sort of a niche thing. I kept hearing things like, this movie's going to change cinema. It's going to rethink the wheel. It's an indie darling. It's innovative. And, you know, I will give the devil its due. It was a cinematic innovation for the time. But at the end of the day, it ends up being more of a gimmick or a footnote to cinema as opposed to a game changer. It's the Blair Witch Project. And yes, so much hype surrounding this movie. And I know that there was some grassroots type hype as well. It sort of fell onto the scene and people were like, have you seen this? Did you see this? You know, I went and saw that. You got to see it. And I respect that. Okay. It was also a very unique experience when you got to the cinema. At least I had one. For example, I walked in and there were a massive amount of printed or even handwritten signs of warning all about how the movie has caused adverse reactions to folks. Things like motion sickness, uh, feelings of discomfort, and what have you. And that just sort of amped me up even more. Now look, I didn't want to be in a theater full of people puking their guts out like new guy in the corner, but at the same time, I was like, wow, 
this movie is really affecting people. Like, nobody walks out of uh, fucking, I don't know, the Flintstones. Well, people might walk out of the Flintstones throwing up. But, you know, it's not because of the, the cinema techniques. It's not because of how this film is being presented to you. You know what I mean? And I, it just got me even more hyped up. And, of course, this is back in the day where you couldn't buy your tickets online. So you're standing in line. You're waiting. You're getting excited. And, and it's really amping up the hype. And this movie, you know, it's not bad, in my opinion. I actually kind of like it quite a bit. I think it's probably even easier to, to digest here in like a modern era with a, with a lens of today looking at it. Given our acceptance of uh, like reality TV and stuff like that, or just more of a documentary type feel presentation. After all, they're a dime a dozen over on Netflix and what have you. But it didn't change my mind and blow my mind or force me to rethink my cinematic conventions. And that was the huge disappointment. And that is why it makes the list. Maybe it's unfair, you know, that I'm, I'm really leading into hype. And I'm really leading into uh, the culture on this one. But the possibility was just too much for me to not get all hyped and excited about. And at the end of the day, I'll put it like this. It's a good movie to take in and enjoy, but it just wasn't the second coming of cinema that I was quote-unquote promised. Maybe those promises made unfairly, but nevertheless, that's why I give it the nice, neutral position. You know, I don't mean to sound like I'm flipping about it. I mean, I am serious that I was disappointed, but it's a different kind, and that's the point that I want to get across. Uh, all kinds of regular disappointment for our number seven. All right? Now, call me crazy. It's another sequel. Shocker. All right. I actually think the first one is good and it holds up because they didn't overthink it. They did it just right. That being the first one. They just adapted the source material correctly. It's like someone played the game and turned it into a movie. Number seven is indeed Mortal Kombat Annihilation. <laughs> What's up with this movie anyway? They just reuse the title sequence from the first one, and then at the end, the word Annihilation just crashes through the screen in awful, awful CGI, which we'll talk about. Oh, God. I, I remember this movie just kept getting delayed. And for some reason, that didn't trigger in me what it seems to trigger automatically to me today as a somewhat of a universal truth. Delays and reshoots equal trouble. I, I, again, right after school, saw this bad boy opening day to a not-jam-packed multiplex. And when the trailer for this movie became available online. Because remember, back in the day, if you wanted to see... Can you imagine this? If you wanted to see a movie trailer, you had to seek it out on your own. Or, by happenstance, go see a movie that happened to have a trailer for it. It's like... When, Mortal Kombat, when I saw the trailer for the first Mortal Kombat, it's because I rented, I think it was like The Mask or Dumb and Dumber or some New Line Cinema motion picture that happened to have the trailer attached. And you know what? I don't remember what movie I was that had the trailer that I rented. I remember not liking it, and I watched the fucking trailer for Mortal Kombat on repeat, that being the first one. But I went through the trouble of downloading the trailer for the sequel off of the web. It took like an entire day to do it and I was pumped after seeing this trailer all right 
I mean, it seemed to be just everything I love from the first one, but amped up to a thousand. Original characters returning. New characters, yes. I mean, the song tells you everything you need to know. Liu Kang, Sonya, Jax, Kitana, Jade, Sub-Zero, Scorpion, Cyrax, Smoke, Shiva, Mutaro, Mortal Kombat! So, so what went wrong with this bad boy, you might be asking yourself? Well, let me ask you a different question. How much time you got? Some of the worst CGI in the history of our sport. And considering that this is New Line Cinema that made this bad boy, that's saying something. Side note, a complete tangent rant, okay? Up until the Lord of the Rings trilogy was released in 2001, because that's a New Line Cinema film uh, production as well. New Line Cinema as a film studio in the 90s had the worst CGI of fucking all time. It's like they used the same special effects house for everything because it all looked the same and it all looked the exact same level of fucking awful. And I've, I've got some sources to cite, okay? The first two that come to mind, aside from Mortal Kombat Annihilation, Lost in Space. We're lost, aren't we? Yes, we are lost in space. Thank you, trailer. Uh, and Spawn are the big two that spring to mind. Also films that came out. Uh, right around this time in 90, no, 98. Spawn was 97. Lost in Space was 98 because Lost in Space. Trivia note, anybody know what the Lost in Space movie is famous for? Like in a vacuum? Now you could be like, well, it's a Matthew. I don't know. It had uh, fucking one of the friends in it. Uh, Joey, Joey, uh, what's his name? Matt LeBlanc in it. That's The trivia question is this. That's the movie that broke Titanic's number one at the box office streak in April of 1998. Why do I know this shit? Well, because I'm a loser. Uh, and hey, but that ends the special effects conversation. If you're a fan of Johnny Cage, though, don't see this movie because he's dead right from the get-go because we couldn't get legendary star Lyndon Ashby to come back and play Johnny Cage. Now, is Lyndon Ashby legendary? No, but he sure was a good Johnny Cage and one of my favorite parts of the first one. This is the part where you fall down. And again, the first one just doesn't overthink it, all right? Also, the first one has <laughs> Christopher Lambert as Raiden. Recast here with legendary six-pack-a-day actor James Remar. Now, for fear of copyright infringement, I will simply point you to the We Hate Movies podcast for more details on James Remar's recasting of Christopher Lambert because, holy shit, Check out their, not that they need my shameless promotion, uh, but since they're some of my inspiration for getting into the game, if you will, game over, you're damn right they're over. Uh, their episodes on Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat Annihilation will keep you in the feels for the rest of your days. Now, this movie also has some of the worst line delivery in the history of our sport. Mother, you're alive. Too bad you will die. Wait. If your father is an elder god, choking the uh, stroking the chin, what's that make you? I like that one because it's a great variant of the old, wait a minute, if you're here and you're here, that means, oh boy, the earth 
was created in six days, and so too shall it be destroyed. And on the seventh day, mankind will rest in peace. Mortal Kombat Annihilation, however, has lived on as an all-time bad movie, sort of like midnight picture, let's point and laugh at it and make fun of it type movie. And that's fine, it deserves it, and I can enjoy it, enjoy it in that context. But folks, a 13-year-old Mortal Kombat playing Johnny C had his heart shattered into a trillion pieces. And it makes the list. Number six. The motion picture Scream changed my cinematic life. Okay, I know, it really did. I'm a huge fan also of Dawson's Creek, the earlier seasons. And of course, those two things have legendary writer-creator Kevin Williamson in common. And folks, Kevin Williamson could do no wrong in my eyes. Scream introduced me to Halloween. No, not the holiday, the film series. Sure, I had heard of it. You know, I knew who Michael Myers was. But I didn't realize that Halloween was indeed something special until Scream put it up on a pedestal for me to then acknowledge. (laughs) Halloween was basically saying, acknowledge me. And it wasn't until Scream that I did. Now, you want to talk about Halloween H2O? Well, fuck it. Who cares? I loved it. Sure, it's paced horribly and it doesn't live up to what it should have been. And again, (laughs) reshoots. You know, we've talked about reshoots. But with Kevin Williamson on certain aspects of the script to punch up the dialogue and the new hip approach, I appreciated Halloween H2O and just flocked to the cinema to see it that summer and just yes, 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 if you will. Now what does that have to do with our number six? Well, number six is indeed the sequel to Halloween Resurrection, or God, to Halloween H2O, Halloween Resurrection, Halloween 8, if you will. Now fuck me sideways, I fucking hate this movie. Now, I don't really have anything, uh, you know, to say about Busta Rhymes, but trick-or-treat motherfucker indeed. I mean, casting the rapper as the star of your seventh sequel is really everything you need to know about horror sequels that don't need to exist. And much like Speed 2, as we discussed in great detail, this movie was a script about streaming murders online or a reality show murder thing uh, that just became Halloween 8. They took this script and just reshaped it to what it needed to be. The immediate undoing of the satisfying conclusion to Halloween H2O is enough to disappoint. But killing Jamie Lee Curtis in such an offhanded way and doing it in the first five minutes, boo this man indeed. And I don't know what makes me more disappointed. This movie itself or the disappointment I should have in myself for thinking that it wouldn't just be a fucking train wreck. By the time this movie had rolled around, I was like a Halloween series expert. I could sit down with people and help them trace out all the various and divergent timelines. I could tell you, so Halloween 1 and 2, H2O and 8 exist in their own timeline. Halloween 3 is its own thing. Or if you want a different experience, watch 1, 2, then 4, 5, and 6. I was basically new rock stars for Halloween in my local area. And I hate this fucking movie with the passion of a thousand sons, as my old buddies Lincoln Park might say. Now, I rewatch the Halloween series all the time, and I skip this one every time. And keep in mind, folks, when I do my rewatches, 
I watched both versions of Halloween 6, the theatrical and the producer's cut. That's how much of a fucking Halloween fam, fan I am. I would rather watch Rob Zombie's H2 than this movie, okay? I banished this movie from existence for the rest of time, and that is only number six. You know, when you look, when you look at a list like this, though, okay, you can sort of divvy it up into equal portions of three, making the top five the last stand, if you will, of this podcast. And with that terrible transition out of the way, let's talk about entry number five. It's X-Men The Last Stand. Now, it doesn't really surprise me that Hollywood would butcher a famous comic book storyline. It does, however, surprise me that they, if they, uh, they get the opportunity to redo their failed attempt, that they would fuck it up again. This, of course, has happened twice with the fantastic Phoenix or Dark Phoenix saga uh, that's a staple of X-Men-based entertainment. Now, I don't want to get into the details of the actual storyline itself because that would take too much time. But understand that if you're going to do the Phoenix saga, the X-Men need to have accomplished two very specific things. One, they need to have traveled to space before. And number two, on one of their spacefaring adventures, they need to have come into contact with and befriend the rulers of an intergalactic planetary empire. Sorry, I had to throw in the Beastie Boys there. So, X-Men United, which was X-Men number two, did set up a decent enough, and I don't want to discredit it, decent enough meaning compared to the actual base material, it set us up to tell a Phoenix saga. A, a version of the Phoenix saga that would exist properly within the universe of X-Men 1 and X-Men United. Okay, and, and I give it all the credit for that. X-Men United is a top-tier comic book film, period. Now, X-Men and X-Men United were directed by Brian Singer. World-famous, question mark, director, Brian Singer, who has indeed fallen upon hard times, if you will. Those are self-inflicted hard times, though, so shed no tear. But it's undeniable that X-Men United improved upon the first entry in the, in the uh, series, and it stands on that rare platform of a sequel that outdoes the original. Now, Mr. Singer would choose to jump ship over to Warner Brothers so he could helm a DC comic book film, Superman Returns, which just barely, mind you, misses the cut. And it misses the cut due to the fact that when I walked out of the theater, I had a very false sense of satisfaction upon first viewing of uh, Superman Returns. Story for another time. So, this is an example of a trilogy being abandoned in the final chapter. Keep that one in mind. Uh, but this change, the change in directors and the creative talent behind the scenes, led to the plot shifting away from the Phoenix Saga, which again is a huge, complex, layered story. It was instead decided that they would adapt a story known as The Cure, and they would decide to shove in the Phoenix Saga as the B-plot. Now folks, I've already made it a point to emphasize that the Phoenix Saga is complicated and involves elements that are otherworldly. And now you're telling me you're going to make it the B-plot. It smells like cinematic shit, if you ask me. And well, I'm sad to report that the film delivers that in droves. It makes all kinds of mistakes. And, and you know what? Let's just get the fucking... Uh, the, the talk about what is it the uh, the fucking thing in the room elephant in the room there there it is euphemisms if you're a fan of Cyclops which of course is Jean Grey's 
paramour, if you will, and a central cornerstone of the Phoenix Saga next to Jean herself. Phoenix kills Cyclops. Okay, well, that's fine. I'm not really a huge fan of Cyclops. I like the modern version of Cyclops that lives on the island of Krakoa. Again, a story for another time. But if you're a Cyclops fan way back when, or just a fan of decent storytelling, I'm afraid I've got some bad news. Cyclops is killed by the Phoenix off camera in like the first 20 minutes. Not to mention this film. I mean, so it's like this. If you're going to cut it in two and be like, all right, well, maybe it's a bad adaptation of these storylines, but I'm sure it's a fun action movie. Nope. Some of the worst wire work this side of a backyard wrestling match. Plus, it's a over it's there's an oversimplification of X-Men related politics here as well. The mutant cure is a fine storyline to adapt and it's a fine uh, MacGuffin, if you will, to sort of lead our characters on a journey. But that alone, the implications of it, the politics of it, the nature of identity versus genetics. I mean, that's its own fucking thing to begin with and should not be handled by 20th Century Fox in the year 2006. But that's, you know, whatever. Even good old Hugh Jackman as reliable Wolverine can't save this bad boy. And, mind you, given all the information I've shared about the plot, this film is shorter than the second one. Which, while, you know, has a complicated plot, doesn't involve near the stakes of this trilogy capper. And I'm not saying a movie has to be long to be good. I'm saying a runtime of a film has to lay in line with the story you are trying to tell. You don't have to cut it. Again, you cut it so you can show it as many times as you want during the day to make as much money as you can. The best way that I can sum up the experience of watching this film, okay, because you're told you're going to get all this classic X-Men stuff that you love and you're ready for it and you're so excited. Well, the opening scene is such an apt description of the feeling of watching this film. I'd like to describe it in just a little detail. So the X-Men finally do battle with their iconic nemesis, the Sentinels. Robots that are as tall as a building that walk around hunting, kidnapping, and killing individuals that have the mutant gene. We've waited forever to see this, and here it finally is in all its glory on the silver screen. Unfortunately, this battle is only a simulation. Now, you might say to yourself, okay, that's fine. The X-Men's Danger Room is, again, a cornerstone of comic books. It's a room where a computer program simulates a real-world battle. So, okay... We'll see Sentinels, we'll see it in the Danger Room, you get a win, and you get a win. But when the X-Men battle this Sentinel in the Danger Room, we only see the head of the robot because Wolverine tosses it into the camera after he decapitates it off screen. It's it's like edging for an entire day and then falling asleep. Moving on, I'm done with you X-Men The Last Stand, you've put my mind in the gutter. Now, speaking of mind in the gutter, number four, well, this leads to number four. I quite enjoy this golden age of digital media where you can find anything you want on the internet. See, that's a transition there. Uh, We can basically watch anything at any time, anywhere we are, as long as we have a broadcast signal or, you know, fucking uh, cellular signal. you, You get the point. But, you know, when this all started, it feels normal now. But back then, it was a paradigm shift. 
And we really needed to, as a society and as an industry, pause and think about the way that those in the entertainment sphere would be compensated for this new way to view content over the digital waves, if you will. And surely, major film studios wouldn't balk at this and would agree to take a step back and listen to the content creators and figure out a way to duly compensate them for their work. Or, to be less legal about it, they should pay the writers of these materials a decent percentage, whether it be a penny a download, a nickel a download, whatever is appropriate based on what they earn for other things, etc., etc. What's that, you say? It's the year 2007, and the film industry, film studios, are balking at this and saying, nah, we'll just keep things the way they are? Well, as my good friend Jesse the Governor Ventura would say, well, we're a union, I think we should strike. And so, in 2007, the members of the Writers Guild of America did just that. And our reward for this strike, allegedly, as the writer's strike has been blamed for the incoherent ramble that is the screenplay of our number four film, I kind of like to believe that regardless, the director at the helm would have given us a clusterfuck on a platter regardless. Maybe there would have been some better dialogue or a more coherent plot, but it probably still would have sucked. I, of course, am talking about the blockbuster film Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Now, I quite enjoy the original Transformers film, you know, in the proper context. If you don't believe me, listen to our 50th anniversary special in the Aqua Cave, Top Man, covering Transformers, the movie. So I was extremely hyped for Transformers 2. And I went to the cinema, and I got slapped across the face with a big, giant robot balls. And, you know... Getting slapped with balls is okay, as long as it's consensual. But big giant robot balls? No, thank you, sir. So I found out that it was playing a day earlier than I expected in my local community. I got a ticket at the very last minute. I raced to the 10 o'clock showing, because I hate to miss trailers, of this 2 hour and 45 minute epic, knowing full well that it would get out very early in the mornings of the ne- in the hours of the next day, and I'd have to go to work. Alright, you know, it's a give it a take world. And I returned home a beaten man, not from exhaustion, but just from the utter mess that was on screen in front of me. I'm not even going to talk about Skids and Mudflap. If you know the film, you know who they are. If you don't, Google it. You'll be amazed. I'm also not going to balk at the fact that the Transformers built the pyramids. I'm not going to sit here and ramble about the fact that they decided the best way to entertain me in this film was to give me more John Turturro. Now, I don't have a problem with John Turturro as an actor, but I do have a problem with Michael Bay's adaptations of screenplays. It seems like every picture that this man is involved with, all right, involves characters that are blank, that also blank. Now, what the fuck does that mean? Well, okay. So you're a uh, high-ranking government official in a secret uh, organization that hides knowledge of the Transformers. Okay, that's your character. But don't forget, you're all that, and you're a guy that likes to wear crazy boxer shorts. And for some reason, that's important. What's that you say? You're the Secretary of Defense? That's your character? Sure. But don't forget... You're a secretary of defense that's a little kooky, and you have to always wear the best, most comfortable Nike shoes when you wear your nice business suits. What's that you say? You're a college student? Sure, but what are you by night? 
Oh, you run a conspiracy nut website about robots. It's just so ridiculous. Like, why can't people just... Why can't we just... You know what? Michael Bay, all this talk about more complex layered characters. When you're involved, just give me base level. You're a college kid. You're his hot girlfriend. And I'm sorry, all right? But obviously, what they were doing wasn't work. So let's work in base level stereotypes. You're a prick roommate, all right? You're an asshole secret agent. You're a bitchy secretary of defense. You're a supermodel that's also a Decepticon. Oh, fuck, he actually used that one. I hate this movie so goddamn much, but the the ultimate, the ultimate betrayal is the rushed death and resurrection of Optimus Prime, which should have brought the audience to tears. Or at least those of us who are fans of the 1986 Transformers film. To tears. I was in tears because it was done so poorly. And I'm not even going to talk about the trash-talking tiny Autobot named Wheelie from Brooklyn. I heard this franchise was getting a reboot. Is it too late? to break into Paramount. No, you know what? That's a crime. I'm just going to move on to number three on the list, which, calming down, is actually a lot of fun because it's a dual entry in the list, and I promised you one of these folks, and here we are. The number three biggest cinematic disappointment of all time is Phenomenon, starring John Travolta. What? All right, all right, all right. Let me explain. That is part one of the double feature, yes. But again, a little context, because Eric Bischoff claims context is king. So it's the summer of 1996, and I'm on vacation in California, and I'm visiting for the very first time. And I've convinced my parents that we need to go see a big Hollywood blockbuster right here in Los Angeles. Thumbs up. On opening night, nonetheless. And you know what? They bought in to my childish dream. Because it's not like I was going to a fucking premiere or some shit like that. And to tell you the truth, I was more in the suburbs of Los Angeles than Los Angeles proper. But they bought it, they went for it, and here we go. We arrive at the massive multiplex that has like 20 screens, which for me was a novelty. The cinema I visited had six. Three that were functional. So, we arrive... Give me two tickets for... Oh, I'm sorry, sir. That film is sold out. What? These things could sell out? This doesn't happen in my small, quiet, little, white trash, lonely mountain town back home. I was heartbroken. My dreams were shattered. My parents, however, were still determined to enjoy their date night, viewing the 1996 flop starring Demi Moore, known only as Striptease, and suggested that we choose another film to view. Unfortunately, I've got two siblings, and none of us could agree upon anything. I gave a desperate plea, a final vote, if you will, for The Cable Guy, because at least it was a Jim Carrey movie. But, it turns out, despite my pleas, the clerk informed us there was only one other film, aside from the sold-out film, that was showing at the exact same time as Striptease, and that is the aforementioned Phenomenon starring John Travolta. Now, I've never rewatched Phenomenon, but if I recall, John Travolta's like an idiot that gets psychic powers and falls in love with Kevin Bacon's wife. 
And spoiler alert, I think he dies at the end from a brain tumor. So did he really have the psychic powers, or was it all in his head? Sounds a bit like that movie Michael, where John Travolta's an angel, and maybe he isn't, and he dies in the end. But the absolute icing on the cake in this phenomenon scenario, if you will, is that the movie that we all wanted to see was playing in the adjacent cinema. And it was so loud that I could hear, feel, and see how loud it was. And it sounded like the greatest time in the history of our sport. I could hear the explosions. I could feel my chair vibrate from the explosions. And I could see our screen shake because of the sound-based vibrations. I would return home later that week, however, and finally see the movie that I desired to see in Los Angeles. I would leave the theater massively disappointed. The film, of course, 1996 classic, Independence Day, directed by Roland Emmerich. I thought for sure that this movie was going to be the second coming of Star Wars. I mean, this movie's basically piecemeal every sci-fi movie put together for a big schlock of shit, right? And see what I mentioned earlier about Michael Bay's atrocious use of sub-characters that you know too much about. I just wanted an entire movie of dogfights between alien fighters and, like, United States Top Gun military jets, alright? Instead, I got Judd Hirsch play chess with Jeff Goldblum. And you know, that doesn't sound like a bad movie on its own, and that's okay. But not to mention, this is the first time in cinematic history that we get the most egregious sin that I could think of. Well, not that I could think of. And I'm so glad that everybody else is pissed at Will Smith now because I've been pissed at him since 96. Because every time he's in a movie like this, he just plays himself. You cast him as Deadshot, the DC Comics supervillain? Sure, just rewrite the character to sound just like Will Smith. Why not? Now, now, now keep in mind, folks, I am th- this whole Deadshot scenario, I can see going the wrong way. This is not a Michael Clark Duncan kingpin scenario, okay? I'm talking about the character of Deadshot just talking like Will Smith. Will Smith as the character is fine. Idris Elba as the character is fine. All right, this is not a race swap thing. Please, I am I'm not that bro. Anywho, I just, it's just independence. I, I don't know to this day. I don't know to this day if I would have felt differently if I saw the movie that fateful day in California. And I think that's the most disappointing thing about the whole thing. I just, I was so hyped for Independence Day, and and it just absolutely could not live up to the expectations. And, And to top it all off, Roland Emmerich is just an absolutely awful director, in my opinion. Thank God that no one would ever agree to let him helm another blockbuster. Would they? Now, in the Aqua Cave, there has been a lot of internal debate raging with the seating of our final two entries. You know, I've done a lot of soul searching to try to discover the appropriate ranking. And, you know, I'm also trying to consider the entertainment value of this show as well. Do I just want to be obvious? Because both of these films set new standards for disappointment. One comes from my youth. One as an adult. The searching is complete. I have reached a final verdict. However, please note that both films are such tremendous letdowns. But in the end, there can be only one. Number two. You know, and I say this wholeheartedly, film can be powerful. Film 
can give a voice to our emotions and our pain. Film can be used to make political statements. Film can be used as a way to express grief. Film can be used as a way to unite society. Film can be used to get back at people that didn't like your last movie. Wait, it can? Film can be used to make jokes about bad coffee. Well, I suppose if, if you really wanted to, it can. Films can be used to make light of sexual harassment in the workplace. Well, that doesn't sound right. Film can be used to sell shitty tacos. All right, I think you've made the point. Okay. Number two is indeed 1998's Godzilla. His shit is as big as this building. What a fucking disgrace. Now look, I realize that in 1998, we're sort of past the stage of the character of Godzilla being an allegory for post-World War II Japan. And even the Japanese films had, at various points before this uh, film's release, developed or devolved, if you want to say, into some sort of level of camp. But this movie, being Godzilla 1998, directed yet again by Roland Emmerich, uh, chose to indulge in the worst blockbuster tropes of 90s cinema. Now, the build-up and the hype for this film was beyond anything I had experienced at the time. Now, the goofy Taco Bell commercials with the Taco Bell Chihuahua, if you remember that character, really aren't that surprising considering everything that we had even seen up until that point in terms of like promotional times with McDonald's, Burger King, stupid shit like that. That does not impress me on its own, nor does it make a film a disappointment, okay? But keep in mind, you're being bombarded with that shit 24-7. Same thing with, like, I think they had, like, a special godzilla flavor ice cream that I made my mom buy or some shit. Same type of stuff. Now, I will say the New York City or Metropoli marketing was a nice touch. They would have banners across buses saying things like, His foot is as long as this bus. He's as long as five train cars. He's twice as tall as this sign. And, of course, it would be a large sign. And, of course, we couldn't escape the overall film slogan, Size Does Matter. It made us wonder, Godzilla, what, what could you possibly be? The soundtrack was a big item as well. Come with me. You know, that, that song where Puff Daddy bastardizes Led Zeppelin. Uh, you know, Heroes by Wallflowers is there as well. That's not as bad. We could be heroes just one day. Uh, anybody remember Jamiroquai's I'm going deep underground? Or how about the fantastic uh, remix of the Green Day songs, Brain Stew and Jaded, now with 1,000% more Godzilla roar. I'm having trouble trying to sleep. Even more impressive, on a more serious note, because after all, a marketing campaign is designed to market a film to make you come want to see it. All right. So what's impressive was the restraint. The Godzilla character is never fully revealed in any promotional materials for this film. Any toys or movie tie-in purchasable or consumable items were held back from store shelves as long as possible until the release date. It almost reeks of integrity here. 
you have to, you know, if, if you back in this day, you know, I mean, things would slip out. But if you wandered into like your local Target and and saw like an actual Godzilla toy, it's not like you could snap a picture of it with your phone and share it on Twitter with the entire world. So you could try to pull something like this off. Back to that integrity, it almost seemed like it was a genuine attempt to wow us, dazzle us, and allow us to be overwhelmed by the majesty and the sight of this titan in all his glory when it's finally revealed on the silver screen. We had no idea that these tactics were actually a cutting ruse to hide us from the truth. This was not Godzilla. Now that's a statement that seems so easy to make in this modern pop culture world. Not my Batman. Wait, you cast Michael B. Jordan as the Human Torch? That ain't my Human Torch. My Human Torch is white. Anybody with a keyboard has the ability to give you an opinion on every piece of pop culture content that they've almost become moot. But this, this is not a stereotypical fanboy overreaction or just being a piece of shit human like in that Human Torch example. The creature design is a failure in every sense of the word. The movie does itself no favors, as this creature design on Godzilla can't help but remind viewers that they are not watching Jurassic Park. Which, of course, at the time, was a recent film, you know, it's like five years old, not to mention a sequel that came out two years prior, that was designed to evoke a similar and more true emotional response in regard to viewing a larger-than-life finger quotes, monster in modern settings. Gone were any attempts to use Godzilla as a stand-in for the fear or pain of a nation that lived in the shadow of potential Armageddon. But, flip side, Roland Emmerich got to make fun of Siskel and Ebert because they didn't like Independence Day. You guys ever notice that it rains the entire time in this movie when they're in New York City? Ambiance, scene setting, perhaps. Perhaps the rain is a stand-in for an oncoming, unknowable uh, force of nature that's come to wreak havoc on the city that never sleeps. No, no, that's not why. It's because the Godzilla character render didn't look good enough to be shown in daylight. Which, uh, maybe spend your... I just, I, I don't even fucking know where to begin with that statement of truth. No American Godzilla film is immune to over-focusing on human characters. We've seen that even in the modern Godzilla movies, which I'm not here to promote as like, you know, put them on a pedestal, all right? But at least... But, but these human characters in Godzilla 98 are some of the worst of all time. Matthew Broderick chiming in with an all-time awful performance... Hey, it's me, Matthew Broderick. Don't you want to see me fight Godzilla? <laughs> Leon the Professional is charming enough, but it's a role that does nothing. Now, I do enjoy seeing character actor Kevin Dunn, who you may recognize from such films as the Transformers fucking movies, where he played Shia LaBeouf's dad, who was cheap, but also kind of funny. And I love that. I love... That this movie, like, there's a part of me that really enjoys the fact that this movie spent so much money rendering this Godzilla character, and, and obviously it's an expensive film to make, that they, they cut corners, well, I don't know if they cut corners, but they couldn't afford to, like, grab Schwarzenegger, like, just uh, pull a name out of a hat that I know was expensive, alright? So they do rely on lesser known names, which is not a bad thing, 
All right, like Kevin Dunn here. However, flip side, we get Melrose places Doug Savant as an inept field commander that accidentally blows up the Chrysler building. Uh, and Simpsons fans can rejoice because Harry Shear and Hank Azaria are here and they have way too much screen time. And if seen Big G, what up G, as Coachman would say, on the big screen made you miss Jurassic Park even more, well, don't worry. Godzilla's kids are here to stand in for the Raptors and chase our heroes around the hallowed halls of Madison Square Garden so we could be reminded of all the majesty that Steven Spielberg, who's a director that I don't even like, but Spielberg gave us in Jurassic Park, and to a lesser extent, The Lost World. Thank God, however, this movie was only made in 1998. There is one shining grace to be had uh, in this, because it's only two hours and 19 minutes long, which at the time was asking a lot of movie audiences. If it was made now, it would easily be like three hours and 19 minutes. And hey, I sure hope you didn't pay to see Godzilla, or whatever the fuck this giant lizard is, because of those two hours and 19 minutes... He's only on screen for 13 rounded up. Two saving graces about this film. One, kind of silly. It enabled Japanese filmmakers to include this version of Godzilla in the classic cheese fest Godzilla Final War, where he's easily disposed by the real Godzilla and blown to smithereens in Sydney, Australia in like 30 seconds. However, on a more personal note, the saving grace that I found in this film experience... It was released on Memorial Day weekend, 1998. And that meant I didn't have to go back to school on Monday. So that Sunday, I found time to get back to the theater to see a much better and much different film. Released, I think the same weekend, called Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Which, granted, in this modern time known as 2022, is kind of a tired cliche film in the same vein as like Fight Club. Like, bro, have you seen Fight Club? Bro, have you seen Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? But it did give me the chance to spend many of my teen years wandering around at Kager's saying, this is bad country. Number one. Oh boy, I feel like such a stereotype here. So, allow me to give you just a little bit of context. Hate seems to have become the norm. I don't know why. It's everywhere. And you know, sometimes I feel like embracing something just to anger people that are hating on it for hate's sake. However, please know that when I say I'm a fan of Star Wars Episode Seven and eight. I am speaking the truth. I am not trying to contradict the Vox Populi, if you will. I have zero understanding of how people can muster so much anger for the Ray character as a quote-unquote Mary Sue. I mean, doesn't Luke Skywalker blow up the Death Star with a shot that's like one in a million? A feat well beyond those of mortal mankind which sounds like a great reality show. Hi, I'm Mick Foley. This is Mortal Mankind, uh, where people hit me with hard stuff and shoot me and attack me and see if I live at the end of the episode. Oh, thumbs up. I mean, all Ray does is a rudimentary Jedi mind trick, if you really think about it, 
because she displays melee fighting techniques early on in Episode 7, so it's not a surprise that she could hold her own in a saber conflict, especially when you know that she's got some midichlorians running through her blood. And she's a good pilot. We established that when she drives the, or drives, flies the Millennium Falcon, just like it's established that Luke is a good pilot. Well, out of nowhere, actually. We're just told that he is. Now, Star Wars Episode Eight isn't perfect. The Canto Bite subplot is a little long. I have no problems with its narrative choices, but the time invested is a bit much. But no film is perfect. It's like we're talking about Attack of the Clones here. All right, we could we could spend some time on that, but th- that's aside from the point. The ideas introduced in Episode Eight are precisely what Star Wars needed. This trilogy was intended to end the Skywalker saga. So then the message of the trilogy needed to be clear. If the galaxy is to survive on its own, without the Skywalkers and all the baggage and shit that comes with the Star Wars saga, then those who could within the galaxy needed to rise up. And if you weren't sharp enough to notice that subtle message, and it's a message that's just for the narrative, of Star Wars. It's not for you, or your politics, or your country. Like, it's just trying to tell a good story about a galaxy far, far away. Alright? Ryan Johnson, the director of Star Wars Episode Eight, lets us know that Rey is a faceless hero that could have been anyone that was willing to embrace their strengths and stand up for what's right. It's really simple, rudimentary, good versus evil type stuff, which is exactly what Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope was before it expanded into this massive conglomerate. But it did expand, and it continued to do it right. <laughs> but people had to bitch and complain, and for some strange reason, the powers that be in charge of Star Wars decided to... <clears throat> course correct and this my friends is the greatest sin in all cinema altering the art to appease number one is obviously star wars episode nine the rise of skywalker now i tried to figure out the best way to explain what i'm trying to say about course correcting without expanding this into another Zack Snyder's trilogy deep dive because that's not what I'm trying to do here all right but the problem with course correcting is all over the film we have let's just say on a conservative estimate two hours and 20 minutes give or take and this is in the conceptualizing stages of developing the ninth film which still blows my mind to this day that the trilogy wasn't just mapped out to begin with that's a huge problem but let's give and work in reality. So, reality is, we have to make an episode 9. The screen time is probably going to be somewhere between 2.20 and 2.30. And we have to accomplish the following items. The first list of items we have to accomplish are the items that need to be accomplished before the choice to course correct was made. These are items that have to be concluded uh, for various reasons. Most of them because the plot has driven us to resolve these dangling plot threads. One is unfortunately a real-world consequence, and it is indeed number one, the first thing that Episode Nine must accomplish before course correction was deemed the way to go. We have to close the book on the character of Princess Leia. Okay, we have to do that. That's, that, 
It happened, all right? Ms. Fisher passed, and we have to close the book on that character. Number two, given that Episode Eight ends with the First Order taking power throughout the galaxy and Kylo Ren rising to that seat of power, we need to establish the state of the galaxy in the reign of Kylo Ren. Just something you got to do, because you can't close the book on it unless you, you know, open the book on it. Number three, we have to establish the roles of our three main characters that are in the Resistance now that they are united. That being Finn, Rey, and Poe. Number four, we have to bring finality to the relationship that's been established between Kylo Ren and Rey. And you can look at relationship any way you want it, if that's the way you need it. It can be romantic, enemies, frenemies, force users, but clearly... Their interactions in 7 and 8 have brought them into some sort of a relationship. Alright? Number 5. You have to find a spot for Lando Calrissian. Now, I'm totally cool with that, but it's just something that was going to be done. Uh, Number 6. You've got to end the Skywalker saga. Alright? Now, we've decided to course correct. So, let's list everything else we have to do. Number 7. We have to reintroduce the vague idea that Finn is Force-sensitive. Oh, and in case it wasn't made abundantly clear, this is the list I don't like. Because it's just, we, we've clearly gone in a different direction. If there was a plot thread or an idea that was introduced, it wasn't picked up. Alright? Number eight. We have to establish that Rey now has a familial connection to some established Star Wars character. Which leads me to 8A. We have to retcon Kylo Ren telling her that her parents were nobodies. 8B. She simply can't be told that her parents are actually XYZ. She has to discover it. Which will eat up screen time. Number 9. Apparently, we have to find some way to reintroduce the deceased character of Darth Sidious. Not as a vague force ghost, mind you, but as a living, breathing bro. (laughs) Which leads me to 9, capital A. We have to reestablish the Supreme Leader Snoke character, because he simply can't be the bad guy in charge that we killed. Which leads me to 9, capital B. We have to explain the resurrection of Darth Sidious. Which leads me to point number 9, Little A, if the dark side is going to explain the resurrection, you have to further examine this before-known concept of the dark side having the power of resurrection. Nine, little b, we have to establish the Sith homeworld to establish the Sith. Nine C, we have to establish why the Sith homeworld that we've decided to establish was unknown and unfindable. Well, That leads to point 9D. We have to establish how we can get there. 9E. Wait a minute. You're telling me the solution to number 8 is to make Ray Palpatine's granddaughter? Well, wait. Palpatine had kids? 9F. Wait a minute. Palpatine had kids. And this kid, whether it be male or female or whatever, had to have a mating partner? And of course, number 10... We have to fix the tarnished reputation of Luke Skywalker that was 
actually never really tarnished. The character just evolved. Given all of this information, Star Wars Episode Nine, the way it exists, the film that was released, comes across as a hodgepodge of underdeveloped and vague ideas disguised as exciting story beats that lead us on an adventure. It spends so much time fixing Episode Eight that it serves as not only a piss-poor final chapter of this trilogy, but as an irresponsible and irredeemable conclusion to a saga of films that despite some rough patches here and there, never came across as haphazard filmmaking. You may disagree with choices, line delivery, etc., but walking out of Star Wars Episode Nine, you knew clear as day that you had just witnessed a narrative held together by absolutely nothing. It did unforgivable things. It made Star Wars feel cheap. It made Star Wars feel unimportant. And it made me feel stupid for ever caring about it in the first place. But hey, it did give us these iconic words to live by. The dead speak. Well, they speak off camera. Well, they speak off camera in Fortnite. Just, just Google it. And folks, that is that. I could I could go on forever about episode nine and, and really just but it's a whole other thing and so I've decided to focus solely on how it made me feel when I sat there in a darkened theater after the credits had rolled. It it just made me feel stupid that I ever cared. But don't feel stupid for caring about the Aqua Cave podcast feed. If you've listened to this, do me a favor. Subscribe, that way you get notified whenever new content drops. Leave a review, tweet out a link, anything that you think might be fun to do for the show. Remember, I'm Johnny C, but a winner is you.